Hey, this is Jeff from the band Owlbear, and you're listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Chapter 57 begins with a trio of level-ups. Siro the Mad and Romola both receive serious upgrades to their character sheets, while Shanae gets some modest improvements. The narration then opens with the companions drifting along in their boat just around dawn. Against the dark of the night sky, they do not see the figure flying above them. Of course, this is Suro, who has been searching for, and now has found his prey. But Suro does not attack the party. Instead, he returns to his ally, and together, they hurry to catch the party off guard at the grotto, where Suro has determined his quarry will be forced to disembark. The scene is now set for a battle, a different kind of battle one that will involve four spellcasters. But the dice gods are very kind to the companions in this episode. Not only do their attackers fail to catch them at a disadvantage, but Catsbane proves to be the quickest on the draw, and when the fight begins, he's able to disrupt both enemies at once with a single spell. From there, the companions go from strength to strength and win a decisive victory, cutting down Ciro and Romola in just two rounds. Before leaving the grotto, the PCs search the bodies of the defeated spellcasters and find a magical ring. Only Catsbane is able to put it on, and he does so. Yellowfly and Shane probably imagine that he can wear the ring simply because he is a wizard, but that assumption would be incorrect. The episode ends with Torum guiding the party along the cliff's side, and eventually bringing them to a place marked by a deliberate-looking pile of stones and shells. The guide says it shows their path and then leads them over some rocks to a concealed trail running along the cliff's face and overlooking Blue Heron Lake. Up ahead, they can see their destination, a cave entrance that Torum explains was used by lizard folk centuries ago. Chapter 58, Part 1, Day 182, Afternoon. Party status, Yellowfly, 39 of 39 hit points. Shawnee, 30 of 30. Jace, 37 of 37. Catsbane, 17 of 17. Bazu, 16 of 16. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized Invisibility, Mirror Image, and Haste. Bazu has prayed for Cure Light Wounds times two. The water, only 30 feet below, churned and frothed angrily among the sharp rocks, hiding just below the surface of Blue Heron Lake. 
Far above, the sheer walls of Whitestone Castle gleamed in the afternoon sun, and Carrick's tower, jutting out so that its massive abutment was visible from below, cast a shadow like a black dagger. The party felt strangely exposed as they walked under it, hugging the curve of the cliff's face. Eventually, they reached their destination. It was a cave mouth, apparently naturally made, with an opening wide enough to accommodate them only in single file. Before going in, Torm struck a flint and, using his tinderbox, quickly had a small lantern lit. He then led the others inside, throwing a roguish grin over his shoulder as he went. The smoothly organic shapes of the natural rock, carved by time and wind and water, lasted only the first two dozen feet into the passage. Beyond that point, there were signs of purposeful construction. They passed under an arch whose scalloped frame was decorated with shells mortared in place. Beyond it, the floor was tiled with small ceramic squares of glossy blue and green. The quality of the sound changed from this point as well, with the tiles producing a bright, reverberant echo from their footfalls. Torum's lantern light flickered as the passage turned, then opened up into a square chamber, forty feet long to a side. There was only one other exit to the room, another archway, identical to the first. The room itself was bare of any furniture or dressing, save for a huge mosaic mural that dominated the wall opposite the arch. It was made of similar tiles to the ones used on the floor, but these were smaller and boasted a dazzling array of colors that reflected the light from Torum's little lantern dramatically. The mosaic pictured a creature with the head of a snake joined by a long twisting neck to the naked body of a humanoid woman. The figure was shown reclining in a provocative position and the artist's intention seemed to be to make the piece somewhat erotic. In a kind of perverse way, it was. It's their goddess, said Torum in a low voice. His smile was gone, and if anyone had expected him to make a lewd joke about the image, it did not come. Instead, he blew out a breath and said, Been a while since I've seen her. I've forgotten how uneasy she made me feel. I can see why, said Jace, gazing up to the full height of the mosaic where the serpent's head seemed to smile down at them. The figure must have been twenty feet tall, with the top of the snake's head almost touching the ceiling. Whoever had made it had ingeniously incorporated both Mother of Pearl and the smooth pink insides of conch shells to highlight the creature's eyes, fingernails, and other delicate features. Lassatilia, said Catsbane. She is the mother of the lizard folk. I'm afraid I know little of their religion other than their goddess's name, uh, and that she is variously represented as having the head of a lizard, a turtle, or a dragon, but always with the body of a woman. You're sure there are none of her? Worshippers around? asked Jace. I've been gone for centuries. The wind keeps this place free of dust. That's why it looks the way it does. Jace's eyes flicked to the other exit. What's through the archway? Not as much as we think there used to be, replied Torum enigmatically before explaining. Shrawl says this cave used to be home to a hundred or more lizard folk, but they collapsed most of the tunnels before they left. You'll see what I mean soon enough. Anyway, the part that remains leads up to the cavity made by sappers. They were trying to undermine Burham's Keep. Do you mean Burham Square? I'm fairly sure if there's a keep in Silmoral, I'd have heard of it. Shane was clearly dubious. It was torn down centuries ago. Nothing remains. Well, that's not entirely true. I suppose there's some of the foundations still there. I'm unfamiliar with the term sapper, said Jace. What's it mean? Torum's smile returned as he moved towards the second archway. If you'll follow me, I'll show you. Between the Lines 
Back in the summer of 2022, after wrapping season one, I sat down to type up a world-building tool that would later be called Pendulum. The name came from its core mechanic of answering question prompts under the themes of either law or chaos and swinging back and forth between the two. I created the tool specifically to address a solo gaming problem? <laughs> problem might be too strong a word. I'll call it an issue, which was, if you go about your world building from small to big, meaning you start with a single location, populating your map and world history as you go, it's very likely that eventually you'll reach a point of complexity that will make your life difficult. Continuity problems spring up, geographic problems do too. Also, there's no single repository of core information to use as a reference. Uh, early on, this was not so hard to handle, but in the later game, or later episodes in my case, it kind of was. My solution was to create a skeleton of a history that I could attach ideas to as I went, in the hopes of getting the best of both worlds. A stable structure, and lots and lots of room for spontaneous ideas generated procedurally and organically. Anyway, I used Pendulum to create a half millennium or so of rough notes for the creation of Camertine in preparation for Season 2. During the early history, I decided that there had been a war between the original settlers, the Camors, and a tribe of lizardmen. What they were fighting over, and why the fight ended, I left unwritten and undecided. This is my entry into the Pendulum workbook. Year 186. King Ildris, aged 73. Chaos. The kingdom is threatened by a tribe of lizardmen living in the marshes. Early efforts to drive it off fail and usually end in significant bloodshed. Worse, King Ildris seems unconcerned and does nothing, leaving his captains to handle the aggressive creatures. Eventually, the Lizardmen simply move away. Nobody knows why, though there is much speculation. Well, that's it. Ildris, I had determined in an earlier prompt, was a wizard who had taken over the leadership of Camertine from the aged King Saega under suspicious circumstances. Both Ildris and the Lizardmen were after whatever is hidden in the earth under Silmoral. But, I wonder, what drove those creatures away? <laughs> I'm probably boring you to tears. Maybe it's time to return to the narrative. I just wanted to lift the screen for a moment, thinking it might be interesting, but, ah, uh, yeah, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Chapter 58, Part 2, Day 182, Afternoon. Party status. The party status is unchanged. The companions had been in the cave for almost an hour by the time they reached the spot Torum had called the Sapper's Cavity. Just as he had said, along the way there, the twisting passage branched off many times, but all of these auxiliary tunnels had been deliberately collapsed. One did not need to be a dwarf to see how the rock had been cut by hammer and pick. These cave-ins had not occurred by force of nature. At one point, they passed a pile of rubble that contained pieces of broken pillars. By all indications, it had once opened up into a hallway much larger than the others. A grand hall, probably, Torm had intoned sagely as they passed by. Another location pointed out by their guide had a less obvious former purpose. This one was actually another archway, similar to the first two, except that instead of shells, it was decorated with leering lizard heads cut from the stone. The eye sockets of these heads had peculiar, small, orb-shaped cavities. Some kind of lizardman gargoyles, guessed Jace. <sighs> I'm not sad this passage has been collapsed. What are these little holes? asked Shane, her natural curiosity piqued. Maybe better to just leave it be, advised Jace. No, wait, she replied. I want to take a closer look. Step back. I'll save you the time, Torum interrupted. These eye sockets used to contain pearls, big ones. It was Shrall who discovered this place, you know. 
Anyway, he took the pearls, along with a few other treasures he found, and sold it all to merchants in Zaysia. The money he made was no small sum. The short, stocky man gave a little laugh. <laughs> he didn't become the head of the church by accident, you know. Danger. Mystery. Intrigue. Think you've heard all that actual play podcasts have to offer? Think again. I'm Nate Peterson. I'm Nate Peterson. The... D- the, d- the dungeon master for... <laughs> yes, Stuart, what can I do for you? I know naught of this, Stuart. My name is Dweezil Vanzafir, the Bard of Bards. Well, firstly, your name's Stuart and you're from Yorkshire. Secondly, I'm, I don't know if you've noticed, I'm trying to record an advert for our show. Well, firstly, in your parlance, I've never even heard of this Yorkshire. And secondly, if there is a show to be advertised, then surely it should be I, Dweezil Vanzafir, to do the advertising. I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, surely this is a job for me as the Dungeon Master. Uh, perhaps a, uh, song? Mm, no, I certainly don't think it's time for a song. Five adventurers, brave and true, strong of will and strong of arm. A band unbreakable through and through, they protect each other from insult and harm. What more persuasion could one require? Tune in to hear our tales. Uh, 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 Dice and desire. You see, Stuart, words do have power, but certainly not as much power as the dungeon master. Join me as I corral my merry band of misfits who storm King's Thunder every week on Dice and Desire, a 5e actual play podcast. Between the Lines, Part 2 Tora may not be much of a historian, but he happens to have his facts correct in this case. Shrall did rise to power when he and his adventuring group discovered this abandoned lair from the time of the wars with the Lizardmen back in the late 2nd century. At that time, and for reasons unknown, the Lizardmen abandoned their home. Before they left, they used their sapper's tools to seal off most of the place by deliberately bringing down the ceiling. Sapper's tools are essentially just mining equipment, although their purpose was not for recovering ore or gems. If, like Jace, you're unfamiliar with the term, a sapper was someone who literally undermined an enemy stronghold, digging beneath it in order to weaken the walls, or even to mine their way past enemy defenses. The lizard folk did not quite get far enough to break through, but they got close. When Shrawl's party found the place, the first thing they did was to explore and loot it. They managed to break into a few of the less completely collapsed tunnels, and retrieved a number of treasures and artifacts, in addition to the pearls Tora mentioned. Among these artifacts was a ring that could detect poison. This, Shrawl gave to one of his lieutenants, a woman named Gamaluna, who sadly met her demise way back in episode 4. Another item was a magical knife that could negate magic, among other things. This item changed hands until it finally ended up in the possession of none other than Carrick Melmar. He used that same knife to try and weaken the power of the demon, Zorazul, but the magic of the dagger was not strong enough, and it failed him at the worst time possible. I wonder if there were any other items items that might find their way into the path of our PCs. If there are, I think it's extremely unlikely that they're still here. Shrawl is pretty much a master thief, so while it's possible he missed something, yeah, it isn't likely. I'll give it a 5% chance though, why not? A 20 on a d20 means there's still something left to be found here. The roll. A 2, that's a hard no. 
I'll roll one more time and say that there's a 10% chance that a yet unidentified item found its way into the possession of the royal family and is still somewhere in Whitestone Castle. A 19 or 20 means there is. A 16. I suppose Schrall took pains to sell most of his treasures as far away from Silmoral as possible. Perhaps if Tale of the Manticore ever goes back to Zaysha, we'll come across another of these artifacts from the time of the Lizardman Wars. Who knows? For now, let's get back to the narrative. The companions will have almost made their way to the end of the lair by now. Yellowfly hefted a pickaxe, frowned, and replaced it where it had been leaning against the wall. These tools are bigger than normal, I think. Torum turned to face him. The oil of his lantern was getting low, and the light it gave was dim. The average lizard man stood a head taller than a man. They were a lot stronger, too. Some of these tools look a normal size, though. In a much better condition, said Yellowfly, thoughtfully looking at the hammers, picks, and chisels arranged in a line against the wall. The companions were in a roughly cut cavern space that Torum had called the Sapper's Cavity. To get here, they had followed a single unobstructed passage that had twisted and turned many times, but always sloped up and up and up. Eventually, they came to a point where the tiled floor and other signs of careful workmanship came to an end. From then on, the way was rough cut from the rock. The newer tools were brought here by Shrall and his men, explained the guide. The lizard men never managed to dig all the way through, but they got close, and Shrall thought it would be worthwhile to finish the job. Ah, I understand, said Yellowfly, who had already guessed as much. Torum directed the failing beam of his lantern to the other side of the cavity. There, rungs had been hammered into the rock and led up through a dark shaft. Shrall's expansion, he explained. Where exactly will we surface? asked Shane. It was impossible to tell how deep into the cliff they had penetrated. The shaft might open into the dungeons of Whitestone Castle, for all she knew. The boyish grin was back. I think you're going to be impressed, Shawnee. Here, hold the light. He passed the lantern to the rogue. I'll go up first. You there? Barrel boy! Torum was at the top of a flimsy wooden staircase, calling out and pounding a fist against the bottom of a trap door. The ladder from the sapper's cave had led them into the basement office of a building where the companions were now assembled. The space was small, just 20 feet to his side, and had dark mahogany wood paneling on the walls. A small desk and a bookshelf full of brown-paged books made up the only furnishings. The place smelled strongly of mildew. Yellowfly replaced the floorboards that concealed the secret door they had just come through. It was well constructed. Once in place, he could barely see the seams, although it might have been easier if they'd had more light. The oil in Torum's lantern, now held by Shawnee, was almost gone, and the light it provided was feeble. Torum knocked again. Barrel boy! Ah, I hear him coming. Is that good Torum's voice I hear? Came a voice from above. Oh, it's me. Hurry up. There was the sound of a bolt being thrown, and then the trapdoor lifted away, allowing light from above to beam in through the now-open square. A smiling face the size of a pumpkin filled the frame. Hello. Welcome to the Copper Dragon, it said. Presumably, this was Barrel Boy. When the last of the companions had climbed the staircase and closed the trapdoor behind them, sliding the bolt back into place, they took a good look at their host and their new surroundings. Barrel Boy's name was halfway appropriate. Although a full-grown man and not a boy, they could see where the name had come from originally. He was the size and shape of a barrel. He was also bald as an egg, had ears that stuck out, and teeth as big as thumbnails. 
He might have stood six feet fully erect, but he tended to hunch forward, perhaps from living in a cramped space for so long. Please tell me Schwoll has sent some spices along with you. A little salt, some mustard seed. I've eaten nothing but cabbage and onions for a week now. Torum dusted himself off, retrieved his failing lantern from Shawnee, and, now that they were in a room with proper lighting, put out the flame. He set the device on a side table and sniffed. No, I didn't bring any salt. What do I look like? Torum's food and sundry? Barrel Boy sulked a little while introductions were made with the others. Then, he took them through a series of dilapidated bedrooms, all of which contained musty, stained carpets, faded paintings hanging at candid angles, and cracked wall paint. It appeared that this place had once been an inn. Barrel Boy had called it the Copper Dragon. None of the companions had ever heard of it, though. Their hulking host led them up a flight of stairs to the second floor, which had more rooms similar to those on the first floor. Barrel Boy walked with one hand gripping the waistband of his trousers to keep them from falling down. Eventually, they came to a common dining area. It was small and cramped like all the other rooms, but having a table I could seat a dozen was still easily the biggest room they had seen so far. Make yourselves comfortable. I'll bring something to eat. They were all hungry, having finished off the last of their rations on the previous day. Barrel Boy walked out the way they had come, gracelessly banging a hip against a chair as he went. They heard him go down the stairs, and, after a few moments, they could hear him returning. Unless he was expecting us, I don't think he was gone long enough to be bringing us anything hot, said Jace, disappointed. Truly, if he had anything cooking, we'd have smelled it on the way up, said Yellowfly, wearing an unhappy expression. When Barrel Boy returned, he carried a wicker basket in one hand, and, tucked under the other arm, a cutting board, knife, and a full head of cabbage. He put it all on the table. I wasn't kidding about the cabbage, he said without mirth. This basket better not be full of onions, complained Torum, reaching out and taking off the lid. Oh, thank Vasaluna, he said, and pulled out a half loaf of black bread. Two days old and hard as stone, said Barrel Boy. I'll try not to break your knife on it, came Torum's easy reply. He set about cutting up the meager fare and passing portions around. While they gnawed at the tough and tasteless meal, they asked Barrel Boy to share whatever news he knew. He had already heard about the rebellion in Nepul, and he had been aware of Yellowfly's gang since the King's three days of blood and justice last autumn. So, what can you tell us? asked Jace. Barrel Boy picked his teeth with a fingernail and told them what he could. I wonder how much Barrel Boy would know. His job with the Church Thieves Guild is to guard and maintain this safe house. He rarely leaves and, truth be told, spends the majority of his time sleeping. Still, he isn't completely isolated. He can certainly answer some general questions and share some observations about Silmoral's current state of affairs. But that won't be enough to satisfy the PCs who will have some specific questions, and none more so than Bazu, who is desperate for information about the Church of the Sacred Flame and its incarcerated residents. There will be some questions about Whitestone Castle and its level of security, too. Each of the companions will have their own concerns and things they care about, I'd say. In the great tradition of the old school modules, I'm going to give Barrel Boy a bunch of rumors to start. Some will be true, others will be partly true or complete nonsense, all determined at random. To get these, I'll roll a d6 and whatever number shows up, that's how many rumors Barrel Boy will share. Here's the roll. A four, okay. Now I'm gonna roll again for each of these four to see if they're true, partly true, or just plain false. A one to two on the die will mean true, a three to four partly true, and so on. The rolls. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. You know, wouldn't it be more fun if I didn't share these results? Yeah, I think it would be. 
Barrel Boy swallowed a piece of bread with some difficulty and coughed, <coughs> then said, oh, I'd kill a man for a pot of butter. Looking at him, Shanae believed it. You lot been gone how long? A couple of months, I'd guess, supplied Yellowfly. That long? Things are much worse. Their host reached for another piece of bread. Well, things weren't especially good then, said Yellowfly. They're worse, repeated Barrel Boy, matter-of-factly. You'll see when you go out. Examples of what happens to folks who cross Sergeant Koch, that bastard, are just about wherever you look. Heads on pikes over every single gate. Bodies hung from gallows, left for days. There's a pair of gibbets in the Warrens now, always occupied by some lawbreaker or vagrant. There's even a flogging pole in Burton Square, did you know? The whole town stinks of fear. Uh, what news of Colfrey? No sign of the king. Nobody's seen him. That loudmouth priest of his at the cathedral continues to spread that garbage about him being sick and away on pilgrimage. Some folks say he's dead. Who says that? Well, I don't know. Some folks. Yellowfly suddenly had a thought. Perhaps Shrawl had sent them here to get proof of Colfrey's death. That would be information valuable to a revolutionary. Shrawl said Whitestone was all locked up, he said. Oh, it is. Cernan Gate has twice the usual number of guards now. Thurry Gate you can pass, but the toll is four times what it was. Pretty clear, they don't want folks moving around. Makes it almost impossible to get anything. What else have you heard? asked Chane. About a week after Nepule threw off the royal yoke, I heard a town in the South Borderlands did the same. What? Burke? That's the place. The lord down there, scaling or skelling or something like that, refused to pay taxes. Six of the king's men were slain in the argument that followed. Only two of the tax collectors got away with their lives. Not very wise. They must have sent a larger force out of Wolfscliff Keep to arrest him after that. They did not. Burke's got a keep of its own now, you see. Construction finished last summer. Remarkable. I guess that keep will be defending new Borderlands now. Didn't you send someone that way, Yellowfly? One of those winks we killed. I wonder what became of him. Hmm. Ratleg was his name, confirmed the man. Then, turning back to Barrel Boy, he asked, Is nothing else known of Whitestone? I heard there's been sightings of a spectral figure in the East Tower. Some say it must be the spirit of the Queen. Nonsense, Yellowfly scoffed. Is that all? I wouldn't know much about the goings-on inside the castle, said Barrel Boy, wounded. But perhaps when you meet your contact, he can tell you. Our contact? Who's that? At Yellowfly's question, Torum rose from his chair, grabbed another piece of bread, stuck it in a pocket, and said, I should get going. Going where? asked Shane, narrowing her eyes. Bazu looked like he'd been waiting to say something for a while. He lifted a finger in the air. Yellowfly cut him off with a splayed hand and repeated Shane's question. Torum, where are you going? I'm going to fetch your contact. Who is? Torum shrugged. Calls himself Greenblood. I've no idea what his real name is. My job is to get you and this man in a room so you can talk. We've got a room. Now I'm going to get the man. That's all I know, Yellowfly. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy the show and would like to help to support it, there are lots of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and repost episode announcements on social media. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum World Wielding Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone for their support of the show. At this time, please allow me to share one of your kind reviews. This one is by Carl B., 
on Apple Podcasts. Carl describes the show as a perfect gem that can get lost in the mix of its neighbors. And he adds, also thanks to the Iron Realm for inspiring John to do this. Gonna check that out next now that I'm all caught up. Thank you so much, Carl B. The abundance of D&D podcasts is both a curse and a blessing, isn't it? I also want to thank you for signal boosting the Iron Realm, which is certainly one of my all-time favorites, and truly is the show to which I owe the most. The Iron Realm is the first of the semi-actual plays, as far as I can tell, and really deserves the credit for coming up with this, I think, most exciting mode of storytelling. I'm equally grateful to my excellent cast of voice actors, without whom the show would be dull and flat. This episode features four different actors. Returning to the show is Ben in the role of Torm. Ben is from the Annie-nominated Pink Fohawk Shadowrun podcast. Highly recommended and very well made. I have longtime cast members and Tumbledye teammates Kevin Berenger and Kai Allen in this episode, playing Jason Catsbane, as always. Finally, there's a newcomer. From the excellent Dungeon Dads podcast, I'd like to welcome John Watson, who takes on Barrel Boy and really nails the part. Thanks very much, Ben, Kevin, Kai Allen, and John. One more word of thanks is due to Robin Sampson, the creator of Stories from the First Watch, another semi-actual play fantasy pod you should definitely be listening to, for providing the name The Copper Dragon for the inn and safe house that Barrel Boy maintains. Much appreciated, Robin. For listeners who would like to get in touch with me, I am at Manticore Tale on X, or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram, and there's always email, taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Hello, I'm Chris, and I love tabletop role-playing games. Even more than that, I love hearing about the characters in those games. In the TTRPG community, we're always playing characters or building them, so I decided to start a podcast about it. Professional Questers is a podcast all about players and their characters. Your host, that's me, interviews people in the TTRPG world about the folks they play and the games they love. We start off talking to the players, then follow it up by asking the characters themselves to tell their stories. So give it a listen and learn all about our beloved questers.